I want you to imagine for a second that you walk out to your mailbox, you reach your hand into your mailbox, and you pull out a personal letter. Now, let me pause there for a second. If you're here today and you're under 30 years of age, let me explain to you what I'm talking about, okay? The mailbox is this wooden box outside your house and a letter. And so you reach and you get that personal letter and you look at the return address and it's one of your great friends. And you can feel by the thickness of the letter, like this is not just a quick little, hey, how, how are you doing? I'm praying for you. This is a three, four page letter. And so you go inside and you sit down and you open it up. And the first page was so encouraging to you that you knew this friend that wrote you this letter had gone through some difficult times, but they weren't laboring on their difficulties in life. They were saying, here's how they found joy in those difficulties. And as you read it, it almost brings you joy just because you're going, if this person can get through those circumstances, you can get through your own personal circumstances. You get through page one, you flip over to page two, and this friend of yours that's writing this letter knows you well enough and knows some of the things that you struggle with in your own life, they're writing just admonitions going, here's how you find joy in your life, in your circumstances. And they talk about some relationships. And you're reading going, this is like a Holy Spirit delivered letter because everything your friend is writing in this letter is you needed to hear for yourself. And so you finish page two, you flip over to page three, and as you get to page three, there was like big red letters at the top of the third page going, warning, warning, and as you read it, the warning is correct because your friend's tone of this letter changed completely. It went from just talking about joy and experiencing joy and admonishing you to find joy. The third page says, listen, if you're not careful, your joy will be taken by other people. And this friend cares about you enough, you start reading it and just taking as just personal advice going, here's things that you have to watch out for if you don't want your own joy stolen. Now, this letter that I'm describing to you is actually not a pretend letter. It is the letter that you and I have been reading and studying all summer long in our series, Whatever. It's a series called Whatever that talks about finding joy in your life. And it was a letter, this series is a book, book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians written by Paul. And if you've been with us the last three or four weeks, you've discovered that Paul has this amazing ability to write to a church 2,000 years ago, the church of Philippi, but it feels like he's been reading my own mail and he's writing directly to me and writing directly to you. It's the, church, it's the letter to the church of South Sub. And we've been learning what it means to find joy in the different areas of our life, our circumstances, our relationships, our attitudes. And then last week, we learned what it means to find joy even in your work. But today, as we hit chapter 3 of the book of Philippians, Paul's demeanor absolutely does change. It's almost like this loving, caring person, this disposition that he had in the first two chapters. He still cares about the church of Philippi. He still cares about the church of South Sub. But it is a dire warning of what to look out for. Because Paul is seasoned enough in his own Christian life, he's seasoned enough, enough in his own personal life that he knows there are things, and especially even people out there, that are ready to take your joy just like that. So if you have your Bibles today, we're going to be beginning in chapter 3 of the book of Philippians. If you don't have your Bibles, don't worry about it. We're going to put it right up there on the screen. But here's how Paul starts the third chapter, what we call the third page of our letter. And here's what he wrote to his friends in Philippi and his friends at South Sub. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And so right there, Paul is just re reaffirming the things that he's been writing in the first two pages, the first two chapters of this book. He's going, it is good to find joy in life. And the reason Paul knew it's good to find joy in life, not because he was a happy-go-lucky person, but he knew that God designed every one of us, both the Philippians and South Sub Church people, he designed us to find joy. God wants us to experience joy in our life. 
And so Paul is writing, in fact, if you read the entire book of Philippians, joy is used, that word joy is used over 16 times throughout the whole entire book, throughout the whole entire letter. And so Paul says, it is good that I tell these things to you because it is good for you to experience joy in your life. But then he goes on to say this, and it is a safeguard for you. That is the big warning words that he puts up there. He's going, you've got joy in your life. It is good that you find joy. But warning, warning, red alert, there are things out there. If you don't put safeguards in your life, you will no longer experience the joy that God designed for you to. And what he does in the next four, five, six verses is he outlines three different safeguards that the Christians, the Church of Philippi, and us need to add in our lives if we're going to make sure we continue in joy. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to share with you those three safeguards that Paul points out in this part of the letter. And here's the first safeguard that he points out. He says, you need to watch out for unbiblical influences. Watch out for unbiblical influences. If you're taking notes, that's the first fill-in right there. What he says in the scriptures, verse 2 and 3, Paul says this. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are in circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, what was going on is there were individuals in Paul's day that was coming in and they were teaching the people things completely different than what Jesus had taught when he walked the face of this earth. And Paul steps in going, listen, your joy will be stolen, especially your spiritual joy, if you allow these evildoers, these, these mutilators, these dogs to come in your life and you begin listening and following what they have to say. In fact, look at those, those descriptions. Evildoers, not the nicest thing to say about somebody. Mutilators of the flesh, but then he used that word dogs. Now, here is Paul. He's an apostle, right? He's a disciple. You would think he would find more spiritual, more affirming, nicer words to be used, but he used the word dogs. Now, we use the word dogs, and it's more of a gentle, nice way, right? Because you probably have a dog that lives in your house, may sleep on your bed, may jump up on your couch, may eat at your table. So we have a loving disposition towards dogs in our society. But back in Paul's days, there were no such things as house pets called dogs. In fact, the only dogs that you would find within the culture that he lived in would be street mutts, mangy mutts. I was flipping through social media this past week, and I ran across a picture, and it was a dog that was found on the street. And this dog had, like, bumps all over around his eyes, around his mouth. They just looked like almost like little mushrooms all over his face. As I read the article, those little bumps that looked like little tiny mushrooms were actually ticks that attached to him. And they were showing this dog, just saying this is the sadness of this situation, that nobody wanted this dog because he was such a mangy mutt that everybody just kind of stood back from him thinking they don't want to get what he's got. That's how Paul is referring to these false teachers. He's going, they are worse than mangy mutts. You need to stay away from them. You need to have nothing to do with them because if they teach anything unbiblical, then it will lead you down the wrong path. Church, can I just put a target on me for a second? Okay, I'm, I'm going to give you permission. I'm drawing the target, and you've got the guns in your hand. As your pastor, if I ever teach or preach anything that is not found in Scripture, you have my permission with a big target on my chest to haul me out those doors, out the front doors, and throw me on the street and never let me back in again. Because the church, God's church, is not founded on an individual's opinion. A church is not founded on an individual's thoughts. It is founded on God's ways and God's words, and that's it. And so I just invite you right now, I want to be so just accountable to you 
that what is said and what is spoken on the stage, in these hallways, in our conversations must be based on God's word and God's word only. Nothing will lead us away from spiritual joy than the moment we start following our own ways and not God's ways. And so here you go. You got my permission to haul me out and throw me out. But you know what I've learned? It is many times not the preacher that leads people astray. Because if I got up here and I said something that was unbiblical and not found in God's word, it would really be easy for you to detect and somebody would stand up going, okay, get him out, get him out. But yet you and I in our society are faced every day with other sorts and types of unbiblical influence. They're found in our media personalities, in our talk show hosts, in our friends, and even our family. That we allow these people to come around us and they express their opinions, they express their thoughts, they express their ways. And while we're talking to them, or while we're listening to them, or while, while we're watching them, we somehow forget and take off our own biblical filter. We set it aside and we begin listening to what they have to say and believe with no filter to see if it's God's way or not. But we need to make sure that no matter who's speaking to us, whether it is media the most famous movie star that you've been in love with since you were 16 years old, or your son, or your aunt, or your grandparent, or your grandchild, or your best friend for life. Doesn't mean we have to cast them away and not have a relationship with them, but we cannot allow their words to become the truth in our life. Paul said back in chapter 2, he said this in verse 16, Hold firmly to the word of life, then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. When he said hold firmly to the word of life, he's going to hold firmly to the word of God and allow the word of God to be the filter for all truth in your life. So his first thing, he said, if you want to make sure that safeguard to make sure you keep the, the spiritual joy in your life, you need to watch out for unbiblical influences. But here's the second thing he said. He said, you need to watch out for adding anything to Jesus. That's your second fill in the blank. You need to watch out for adding anything to Jesus. When Paul mentioned the mutilators of the flesh and he mentioned circumcision, here's what was going on. Remember, Paul was living in a life right in between what we consider the Old Testament days and the New Testament days. That Old Testament days was pre-Jesus. And so the way to have a relationship with God in the Old Testament days, in the pre-Jesus days, was by following the laws and the rules and the regulations that we found outlined in Old Testament. In fact, as you read Old Testament, the whole entire part of it, there's over 600 rules, laws, and regulations that people were supposed to follow in order to have this good relationship with God. But then Jesus entered the scene, and Jesus said, this is no longer about rules and laws and regulations. It's about trusting and believing him in him as the son, the resurrected son of God the Father. And so Paul was living in both stages. He experienced life pre-Jesus. He came in his own way, met Jesus in this profound way. Jesus changed his life, and now he's living life in Jesus. And so what was taking place is Paul would preach, listen, it's only Jesus. If you want to have a relationship with God, it's by placing your trust and faith in him as the son of God. And as he preached that, the word of Jesus, there were men, the false teachers, they would come around going, okay, Paul, hang on a second. Like, this is good about Jesus thing, and, and, and we'll preach Jesus, but it's not Jesus only, it's Jesus plus. 
And these men, these false teachers, would pick and choose some of the different rules and laws and regulations from the Old Testament. And they would tell everybody, it's okay to trust and follow Jesus and believe in Jesus, but you also have to add this and that to your faith for it to be real. And one of the laws that they were really just forceful and imposing on them, they said all boys at eight, years of, at eight days of age must still be circumcised. That was something they'd done for many, many years. But Paul came and said, listen, that's not, making you follow, that's not making you a follower of Jesus, okay? That's just something you could do. But these false teachers would come in going, no, no, no. If you want a relationship with God, trust in Jesus, and you have to add to it, you must also be circumcised. That was one of the rules, laws, and regulations they added to it. And so Paul steps in going, hang on, time out. No, 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 that's not it. A relationship with Jesus, a relationship with God is Jesus only. That's the reason it's called a free gift, lest any man shall boast. It is only faith in Jesus. When you start adding to that, when you start saying you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to do that, then we become works-based. So it's never works-based. It's always faith-based. And that's the message of the gospel. That's the message of Jesus. So Paul looks at these men and he's writing to the Philippians going, do not buy into the philosophy that is Jesus plus. It's Jesus only. And then as he's writing his letter, Paul does something that I think is just, just humorous. He starts adding a little bit of Paul sarcasm. Okay, As a pastor, as an apostle, you think he's supposed to just shoot straight and be very shepherding and very gentle. But he let the real side of Paul come out. That side that, that you kind of jab somebody and kind of twist a little bit with a little bit of your sarcasm. Anybody have that side of you? Yeah. Okay, Paul has it. Okay. And so well, here's what he does. In this letter, he's going, it is Jesus only. It is not Jesus plus. It is Jesus only. But guys, hey, false prophet or false teachers, if you want to call it Jesus plus, let me just show you who I am and all the things I've done and all the positions I've held, and I'll show you just how good I am in Jesus plus. I'm a lot better than you guys. Checkmate. I win this argument. Now, again, he's doing it in a sarcastic way, okay? He's doing it to point out how faulty their thinking is. But let me read to you how he put that. In verse 4 through 6, Paul says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he starts outlining what he has more of. He says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, I'm faultless. Again, sarcasm, okay? Paul was not saying, here's my qualifications, Jesus let me in heaven because I got all this. He's going, no, no, all that won't get me to heaven. It's Jesus only. But for you guys that think it is, I'm a whole lot better than y'all. That's a sarcasm. Now, here's the problem. It was Paul's sarcasm 2,000 years ago. But I'm afraid it may be our stepping on our toes today. And here's why I say that. On surface, we don't understand all that when he's talking about circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. That's not the, Lord, the, the, the culture we live in, so it's kind of right over our head. But when you really understand the basic, the context of what he was saying about every one of those descriptions, I am afraid that in his sarcasm, he's pointing out some really deficiencies in our own spiritual lives. 
So allow me for just a few minutes. Let me walk you through each of those. I'm not going to go into great detail because there's just, we could go on days and days on the detail of it, but just enough to take the words of Paul, the way he phrased it, but put it in today's vernacular, in today's context, and I think you'll understand what I'm talking about. So the first phrase he used, he said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. We talked about that was a tradition of the day. That was the thing that every good eight-year-old boy had done to him, if you were the Jewish descent, that you were circumcised on the eighth day. As I think about us coming together to worship together, there are four, what I would call non-negotiables that we should be a part of every single morning. In the New Testament, especially in Acts chapter 2, we'll outline these, but there is we should gather together. Scripture says that we should worship together, that we should teach God's word, and that we should take communion and fellowship together. Those are four, like New Testament scripture says, these are the four things that we should be about when we come together on a Sunday morning. Now, those are the four things. But there are many ways that we can experience those four things. And here's what I've realized in my life. When I focus more on how I experience those things or what I do when I experience those things, I find myself focusing more on tradition than the why of we do the, why we do those things. And the why we do those things is because of Jesus and what he's done for our lives. Again, let me say it again. When we focus more on the what we do or how we do it, we begin to lean over here and we focus more on tradition and not the why of the heart behind we do those things. Now, you guys have not experienced this, but let me tell you, two weeks ago in early service. Early service, if you've ever come before, it's pretty much this service. We just have different types of music. But two weeks ago, I ventured out into the no-no land. Instead of doing communion at the end of the service, like we're accustomed here, and people coming up and taking it and sitting back down, we didn't do it that way. Instead, the people stayed there. About the second song in the service, I, I, I got up there, and I led the church in communion, and I surprised them, and I said, underneath the chair in front of you is the communion cup. So they didn't walk up here. They just got it right there. And it gave us more flexibility. It gave me a different approach to the communion. I wanted to make sure we were, we were really just, just participating in it fresh. But I want you to know, I was scared all week because I love this job. And I was afraid if I did that on Sunday, I might not have this job on Monday. Why? Because I was messing with not communion because we still honored and valued communion. I was messing with how we did communion. You with me? How we do communion. In fact, if we want to be real honest, how we do communion in second service is not how Jesus did it the first time he did it. Is there anything wrong with the way we do it? No. Uh, don't worry. I'm not changing anything. We're not changing anything this service, okay? So you can just relax right there, okay? I have a job on Monday. I'm going to make sure we stay here. But here's what I'm getting at. So many times in our churches, our tradition becomes our spirituality. And what Paul is saying right here, he's going, it is not Jesus plus. When our tradition gets on the same level as the why we do it and the Jesus we do it for, we have placed tradition up here and we run the risk of living a life, a spiritual life of Jesus plus. And he's going, the minute you do that and you place your tradition way up here on the same level as your relationship with Jesus, you will lose the joy of the joy of your salvation that God gave you. But he didn't stop there. Let me keep going. He's got several more. The second one, he says this. In his context, it's politics, or the way Paul said it, of the people of Israel. You see, the people of Israel were a nation, right? They were a people group, but they were also a political group. 
For many hundreds and thousands of years, the people of Israel kept waiting for the Messiah to come. They were never expecting a Messiah that was born in a manger as a little bitty baby like that. They were expecting a king to come. And you know why they expected a king to come? Because they wanted a king to have power on this earth. There was political aspirations behind their desire for the king, the Messiah, to come and rule. That way the Israelites could stand up going, we are the top most powerful nation in all the world. And so Paul was going, hey, you, you, you want to talk about what you got other than Jesus? <laughs> I'm, I'm part of the, 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 the people of Israel. I have political power behind me. Now watch, church. In a few months, we will really amp it up in our media and our society about the next presidential election. And I guarantee you, every candidate will somehow weave a little bit of Jesus, God, into their own political agenda. And too many of them do it to draw us in on their side, not to preach what the Word of God is saying. And when we allow our political agendas and our political parties and our political opinions match in and mesh in with the gospel, we are doing the gospel and in service. Now hear me. There's nothing wrong with political parties. I'm glad that we live in a country that we can choose our politicians and we can vote for our politicians. But any politician, no matter who they are, that we ever elect into office will probably never, ever preach the gospel fully the way Scripture tells us to. I'm waiting for the first politician to stand up and say, listen, I will be a servant to all and sacrifice, sacrifice my life for all. Because that's the politician Jesus was. In Philippians chapter 2, he became a servant even unto death. But somehow we, we, and it's so slowly, it just kind of seeps itself into our own religious, spiritual views that our political views kind of graft in there and we don't realize it and the two have become one. And Paul was saying this one, the minute our, the gospel becomes political, we will lose the joy of our salvation. He goes on to the next one. He goes, it's not just politics. It's not just traditions. It's also this attitude of entitlement. Paul used the vernacular of the tribe of Benjamin. There were 12 tribes coming out of the Old Testament days. And of those 12 tribes, Benjamin was considered like the elite tribe. Benjamin is where the first king of Israel, Saul, came from. If there was ever a parade to the nation of Israel, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, always lead that parade. They were considered the best and foremost. And so Paul's going, hey, you guys, you want to know things I bring to the table? If you want to be Jesus plus, I'm not just of the Israel nation. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a step above most of you in how you view yourselves and how you view things around you. He has said, I've got this sense because I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a sense of entitlement. When we allow our own sense of entitlement to graft in and seep into our spiritual lives, we will lose the joy that God has set forth for us in our spiritual lives. You're going to entitlement, Keith. I don't, I don't really think I have entitlement. Here's the best or a couple of ways that you can gauge if you have spiritual entitlement. If you've ever used the expression, this is how we've always done it, there's a sense of spiritual entitlement found in that phrase. If you've ever used the phrase, I've been attending here since... There's a sense of spiritual entitlement found in that. I am thankful for those that have given so much over all the years. And I think there's a place that we honor people like that. Absolutely. You may be one of them. But when we hold that up as a trump card, as an ace card, as an ace of spades going, I win because of this. There's entitlement. And here's what God says. And here's what Paul is preaching right here. When that's brought up like that, 
we will lose the joy of our spiritual lives that God has for us. If anybody that ever walked the face of this earth could have claimed entitlement, it would have been Jesus himself. But the last I looked, he washed his his disciples' feet. And he goes, this is my place not to do it, but it's my place because I will serve you. Here's another one for you in Paul's description there. It's about position. Paul used the phrase, I was a Pharisee. He claimed that. Now, we often think of Pharisees of these really bad, evil guys. In fact, as New Testament, Jesus once called a bunch of, bunch of sorry snakes. So they weren't viewed so well in the New Testament. But when this office of Pharisee was, uh, was first developed within the Jewish heritage, the Jewish culture, it was not meant that way. In fact, when the Pharisee office was first developed, it was for men to be able to lead people to know who God was. And so in their leading, they would humble themselves and they would be a shepherd to the people. But somehow along the way, these Pharisees took this office of Pharisee that they were given, that they, that they had achieved. Instead of leading people, they lorded over people. They begin to puff their chest up and say, well, look at us. If getting close to God is following all the rules, I follow better than you. I do better than you. I do better than you. And one day, if you try really hard, maybe you'll be as spiritual as me because look at all the things that I do for God and look at all the things I don't do that I'm not supposed to for God. And so they were very, very prideful positions. And our church today, and I say our church, church broad church we have positions and they're very healthy positions in this church we have deacons we have elders we have greeters we have parking lot people we have security people we have sunday school teachers we have children's ministry leaders so there's all kinds of positions without these positions and people serving in these positions we wouldn't be the church that we are today would you agree with that but the minute our positions become more about ourselves than the people we serve We are in a position of trying to be God. Let me say that one more time. Remember I said at this list, once we understand it, we've moved from sarcastic Paul to stepping in our own toes. When our positions today become more about ourselves than others, we place ourselves in a position of trying to be God. And so I'm thankful for our positions, but we can never claim our positions as a spiritual level of achievement. They should always be a spiritual level of serving. I think it was John the Baptist said, I must become less and less, and Jesus must become more and more. Any position that we hold should be to put the light on Jesus and not ourselves. Paul gave a couple more. The next phrase he used, he said, as for zeal, I was persecuting the church. The word that I would use for our own edification understanding today would be activity or volunteerism. Paul was going, listen, I went around, and I went from this town to this town to this town. I was talking about an activist. He goes, I was an activist. I was serving. I was volunteering, and I was persecuting all these Christians. Thank goodness that we have people in our churches today that are busy volunteering. In fact, I think if Paul was writing to us specifically today, instead of saying he was for zeal persecuting the church, he might say, as for serving the church, I'm involved in the brotherhood of my volunteer at Love, Inc. I help with VBS and even serve as a greeter once a month. But here's the problem. Too many times we think of our serving and our volunteering as our spiritual life. That is a response of our spiritual life. When I serve, it's because God first served me through his son, Jesus. And I want to serve because of Jesus. 
it's never my spiritual identity to be a servant or to be in a serving position or activity or volunteering. That's just an overflow of my life. And too many times we place our serving positions, our serving roles, the things that we do, and we quantify them as a Jesus plus. We never say it, but our life lives it out that way. And what Paul is saying to the Philippians, and he's saying to the church of South Sub, serving is good, but it's not part of your salvation equation. And when you make it part of your salvation equation, you will lose the joy of the very salvation that Jesus provided for you. And then he goes on with one last one. Paul said this, and I was faultless. Okay, I've tried to say that several times. My wife just rejects me every time I say that, okay? Like, it's not going to happen. But Paul was going, man, I achieved. I did this for God, and I did this for God, did this for God. If anybody gets to stand up going, look at me spiritually, I was faultless. There's an attitude of spiritual perfectionism that so many of us strive for. Because many of us, we grew up, if I didn't perform, then the people around me wouldn't love me. And so somehow in our mind, we think our Heavenly Father, if we don't perform, our Heavenly Father won't love us. That's a Jesus plus. When Jesus looks at us, he says, I love you just the way you are. When Jesus looks at us, he's going, I took you out of your brokenness. You didn't have to go get unbroken before I took you. I took you in your brokenness. I didn't go tell you to clean up your mess before you came to me. I took you in your mess of sinfulness. And so when we try to, to perform in perfectionism and, and, and make God pleased with us, we're adding a Jesus plus factor to our spiritual lives. And Paul is saying it will never equate joy. In fact, we talked last week that for many of us, that's why we're worn out as followers of Jesus. I got to do more. I got to do more. I got to do more. And Jesus is going, you can't do enough. You can't do more because it will never be enough. And so Paul's writing this letter going, warning, warning, warning. You want spiritual joy in your life? You want to have that joy that you really just remember from a long time ago? You got to make sure that you don't add anything to your spiritual life. And here's the last thing to close with. He said, you need to watch out for an accurate spiritual evaluation. Paul says, you need to watch out for an accurate spiritual evaluation. Let me read verse 7 to you. Paul wrote, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Basically, he's going, I used to have this spiritual scale, and all these good things I did, and all these things as a Pharisee, and all these things as a tribe of Benjamin, I put them on this scale, and I thought if it tilts up, that makes me good. He said, the problem is I had the wrong scale. I didn't have the Jesus scale. And he goes, I had to redo my thinking and get the right spiritual scale to make sure. So that's why he said, now I consider all those things that I was sarcastic about, all those things that false teachers are trying to say, add to your life, add to your life, add to your life. He goes, all of that's loss. And the only thing I count to gain now is just Jesus. And so we have to make sure and watch out that we're not measuring ourselves, our spiritual lives with the wrong spiritual scale. Now, church, let me tell you what took place in my life this week. I'm studying the scripture. And many times when I study scripture every single week, I'm going, God, let it live through me. Let it just not be some mind cerebral thing and give it to you. But there are some weeks when I study and preach that it just works my soul more. This week, this passage, the next part I'm about to read you, didn't just work my soul. It worked out and worked over my soul. Like, 
Sunday had to hurry and get here for me to preach this because I was about to explode with what God was doing inside of me. But it wasn't about you and me. It was about all of us. One of the ways that I get ready to preach, I go walking four or five miles, and I practice my preaching as I walk. So if you ever see me walking, you're probably thinking, that man's crazy. He's talking to himself for like four miles here. This week, this next part of this passage, God worked it, I mean, just worked me over with it so much. I was walking and preaching and crying. I mean, if you would have saw me this week, you would, he is really crazy, okay? Cray, cray, man. I get just Somebody get him some help. But every time I thought about this next part of this passage, I'm just like, oh, it was rough. Not in a bad way, but you know when the Holy Spirit steps in and just like gets you? He got me this week. Let me read to you this part of the passage. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. This is what Paul said. And if I had a gut feeling, if I could just pretend, you know, Paul's having to write this letter to them because he's in jail and he's sending it to his friends. But I imagine as he wrote this section of the letter, he's like, I just want to be there with you. This is not a letter conversation. This is not a text conversation. This is not even a phone conversation. He's going, I love you so much, my friends in Philippi. I want to sit down in your living room, and I need to just share my heart with you because this is the essence of all of it right here. And he says, what is more? I consider everything a loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have found and lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And then he says in verse 10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participating, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Do you get his heart? He's going, these false teachers are coming in here, and they're trying to tell you how to get close to God. That's not it. You know what it means to know God? It's to know Christ. See some of the phrases he uses there? One of the ones he said is everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I pray, South Sub, that God would bless you and me financially. I pray that God would bless us with good health. I pray that God would bless us with good family. I pray that God would bless us with good things in our life. But Paul says this. Those are all good things. There's nothing wrong with them. But he goes, I think this, that the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ should surpass all those things. And church, the reason I was crying is this. I was thinking of you. And I was thinking of me. I don't want to come to church every week that we rely on tradition and we rely on our positions and we rely on our heritage and we rely on all the extra stuff. I want to be a church that we're like, we come here because we celebrate Jesus. And anything else is nothing because the surpassing just goodness of knowing Jesus is where we are. I've been in ministry for 30 years. I love ministry. I can't see myself doing anything else. But if we just come every week and we play the game of church and we play the game of religion and it gives us just enough to smile and go home and come back next week, I want more than that. The book of Ephesians I've shared with y'all that Paul says, I pray that you know him that goes beyond knowledge. 
Paul went on to say this. Everything else is garbage. Denise and I move into our new home in three weeks. We've not had a home to call our own for eight months. We've been nomadic. We're living with people. We're living with family. We're weary. We're so proud of our new home that we're going to move into. I went and bought a washer and dryer yesterday that made me happy. I'm like, I get a washer and dryer. But as much as excited we are about moving into our new home, here's what Paul says. Everything else, including our new home, is garbage. Now, I'm glad the kids left because I want to teach you some theology here. This word garbage, you can look in other translations. They may use the word dung, poop. You can go back to the original Greek. And this is the reason I think Paul said, I just need to come talk to you. I think he took off his pastor's head and like, I just got to lay it out for you. The original word that Paul used in Greek is best translated. Because I'm a pastor, I'm going to spell it for you. S. H I if you don't know the last letter you're a lot more holy than I am because you don't know that word you follow me and Paul used that word it wasn't a normal Paul a word that Paul would use in his, in his vocabulary it wasn't normal like hey let me write a letter to the church word but he's like I want you to see how nasty and gross the stuff is when it's not Jesus it doesn't mean we can't go for it it can't doesn't mean we don't desire it he said but compared to Jesus it is garbage and I think what God is saying to us as a church today, until we put our arms around and grab hold of that thought that nothing else other than knowing Jesus or everything else other than knowing Jesus is garbage. And then he said, I want to know the Christ, the power of the resurrection. The eight months that Denise spent and I spent between our last church and this church, we would attend a different church every single week. Wanted to experience different forms of worship. Wanted to kind of understand some things. Almost every week we went home and said, it was good, but there was preaching, there was worship, but we walked away going, it kind of felt like you just went to a social club or a club and checked off the box and went home. I'm going, God, what's missing? And here's what I've realized. What was missing in a lot of the churches is the power of the resurrection. People would come and focus more on their friends and focus more on that I like that song and that I like that sermon. And we're focused on all these things, these Jesus plus things. But churches across America are coming and they're missing the power of the resurrection. South Sub, listen to me. I pray that we are a church that we experience the power of the resurrection every single Sunday we come. If that means I don't get to do things like I normally do, that's okay. If that means I don't get to sit in my normal spot that I normally do because somebody else is doing, that's okay. I would rather come and experience the majesty of God himself and leave here changed and filled up because of that than to leave and go home going, I got this cute little church and I like going every Sunday. Wouldn't you? Now, what is the power of the resurrection? I'm not thinking crazy in that one, okay? It's not crazy stuff. It's just simply saying when we come, our focus is Jesus. And our focus is knowing Jesus. And if you and you and you and me and you and you, and if that was our singular focus, and we all came together on a Sunday, and that became our corporate focus, I believe Starbucks across the street would sense and feel the power of the resurrection from this building and from the parking lot, and people would come out of Starbucks going, I just got to come over there and see what's going on. 
Because that's the Jesus that changes lives. That's the Jesus that we read about in the New Testament. That's the Jesus that I pray that we are about at South Sub Church. The power of the resurrection. If you're filling in blanks, here's your last blank. The best path for finding joy in your spiritual life is to know Christ. It's not the things. It's not the plus. It's not the additives. It's simply knowing Christ. That's what brings us spiritual joy. And church, that is what I pray for us. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word. Sharper than a two-edged sword. Thank you that your word is mixed with your grace that comes in not to just to hurt us, but to heal us. I pray, Jesus, that we would experience you and the power of your resurrection. That we would come to know you not once a week here, but we would know you daily in intimacy with you. Thank you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name.